This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. I had spent my entire life focusing on this one thing, and now this one thing was gone. I mean, I accomplished it, but regardless, this one thing is gone. Now what am I going to do? You're listening to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. The 2022 Olympic flame has been extinguished in Beijing, and with it, the dreams of Olympic glory for many athletes. The biggest stories of these games included some painful moments, watching a 15-year-old figure skater fall apart on the ice, or the shocking results for downhill skier Michaela Schifrin, the face of Team USA, who didn't even finish multiple events. He, oh, no, no. You have got to be kidding me. Shocker right off the bat. Didn't even get into the course. It's all a reminder of the incredible pressure that humans put themselves under. And even if everything goes right and you win gold, the all-consuming pursuit to get there can leave athletes wondering what comes next. So today we're revisiting a fascinating conversation with a Winter Olympian who won gold and then discovered not everything is golden after the games are over. My name is Steve Messler. I am the 2010 Olympic gold medalist in the sport of four-man bobsled. Steve spoke with former how-to host David Epstein, and we'll let him take it from here. The first time I met Steve was before the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver at a media event. Steve and his teammates were throwing pens at one another across the room, and I thought, well, these guys seem like fun. So then I paid them a visit in Lake Placid to write about them for Sports Illustrated. And Steve and I later became really close friends. I had my first bobsled trip when I was writing about you guys, and you jerks didn't tell me to put my head down in the sled. So it was wobbling all over the place. Uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it's like it's like a great roller coaster, except roller coasters like accelerate and decelerate, whereas my experience of the bobsled was it only accelerates <laughs> yeah. until the end and when someone pulls the brakes. Yeah, there's only yeah, there's only one speed and it is faster. Steve was part of a historic bobsled team known as the Night Train. It consisted of his fellow pushers Justin Olson, Kurt Tomasevich, and the driver was another Steve, Steve Holcomb. Unlike with some of his previous teams that could get uptight under pressure, the Night Train was a riot. The two Steves, Messer and Holcomb, they even had an inside joke that went on to become a viral video. We're listening to uh, listen to the radio, and the Humpty Dance comes on from Digital Underground. The Humpty Dance is your chance. And uh, I get to the track. It's 7 a.m. It's still dark. It's cold. It's like minus 25. And Hulky's sitting over there. And Hulky had been my roommate a couple years here and there at the training center. And I turn to him, and I just you know do the thing that you do, which is like you just throw words into a song. And a, the Hulky Dance is your chance. Do the Hulk. And he starts getting up and does this like stupid little shuffle. And Holcomb is a round guy. We'll say that. <laughs> he's, a, he's a he's a barrel. He's a barrel. Sure. Uh, you know, and he's sitting there like doing this little stupid little shuffle. So for the rest of our careers, wherever I was, I would start yelling and singing the Hulky Dance song, and Holcomb would stop whatever he's doing and starts doing a shuffle. 
Oh, do hokey. Do the hokey hoke doing doing. It was joyful though. Yeah. You know, I think like that I think that's why it caught on so much is it was it was goofy and it was showing the non serious side of you know, of Olympians who usually you see like the steely gaze right before the start. This fun-loving camaraderie, it was a stark contrast to Steve's experience four years earlier at the 2006 Winter Games. That team was favored to win a medal, but they ended up totally choking. But in 2010, our team was, to your point, just was able to relax going into the start house, going to the line. And, th- and that made all the difference for us. It's the final day of competition at the Whistler Sliding Center. Everybody's chasing the fastest sled in the world, the night train. So we, we started out ahead and then we dominated. And by the time the fourth heat came down to it, um, we just had to, we had to get down. We had to do our jobs and we had to get down. Steve Holcomb is about 51 seconds away from erasing 62 years of frustration for USA bobsled in the unseat Longa. We still had the greatest bobsledder of all time, Andre Longa, chomping at our heels, and he had just moved from the bronze medal position into the silver medal position, and we had to come down the hill and still beat him. Look how low these athletes are in this sled. About a half-second lead over Longa. Here it comes. Through, down. He got through 50-50 clean. 93 miles per hour. Steve Holcomb is raced. There's this moment where you cross the line, you're going still 90 miles an hour at this point, and we have our heads down as push athletes. And I can remember popping my head up because there was a clock right there, and the clock is either going to show the time or your place. But I remember crossing the line, still going 90 miles an hour, and out of the corner of my eye, seeing the one on the clock, and knowing that at that point, I had just won the Olympic Games. We had just won for the US, we had won for ourselves, we had won for our families. It is the culmination of at that point 20 years of work and you know 20 years of work came down to pushing a sled for five seconds four times and let the record show after 62 years it's Holcomb, Olsen, Messler and Thomas Evans that are golden for USA bobsled you know I had spent my whole entire life every time the clock struck 11-11 my wish was win the Olympics Every time the clock struck 3.33, 5.55, I would find any, any reason I could to signal to the universe that I wanted this so badly. And when you actually accomplish that, it is the single most satisfying thing that you can, that you can accomplish in your life. But you've written that when you won gold, you'd never been so elated, but at the same time, you never felt so queasy? Mm-hmm. You very quickly recognize that you accomplish your goal, and then you still have to live your life. And there's this like very quick, oh shit moment. What's about to happen? On today's episode, how to get over winning a gold medal. That might sound really strange, but as Steve will tell us, once you've reached the top of your sport, things can go downhill pretty fast. We'll hear how he and his teammates really struggled with their mental health after their competitive days were over. A few of them tragically are no longer with us. How does something like that happen? And how does anyone, whether you're a world-class athlete or not, deal with the loss of identity that comes after achieving an all-consuming goal? Don't go anywhere. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. For a lot of Olympians, whether or not they achieve their ultimate goal, the striving toward it isn't just part of their identity, it is their identity. And growing up in Buffalo, New York, that was definitely Steve's story. I have a fantastic picture of my mom and I, and I couldn't have been more than three, and I'm wearing a USA Olympics sweatshirt with a little USA Olympic logo. <laughs> and the seed was planted before I can remotely remember. Um, not many people grow up saying, I want to be a bobsledder. I definitely wasn't one of those. Um, for me, it was when I was 11, I did Junior Olympics track and field. And that would be like definitely the first time that I was able, actually able to touch the Olympic movement. And I, the spark really hit. Steve was a national champion in track and field in high school, and he was recruited to some really prestigious schools like Harvard, Stanford, and Princeton. But ultimately, he took a scholarship to the University of Florida to compete as a decathlete. And I knew that if I could go to Florida and be successful, I could go to the Olympics. And, and so, so that was like a present goal, not just an afterthought when you were a college athlete. Oh, it was a goal from when I was 11 years old. Because if you can make it that high and win national championship when you're 11, why can't you win it when you're 12? Why can't win you when you're 15, 20, mm -hmm. 25, 30? And if you can win an American national title when you're 25 or 30, you're going to the Olympics. Except Steve's college track and field career, it just kept breaking down. Literally, every single season was ended by some injury. What kept you going? Was it the Olympic dream? Was it I have a bad taste in my mouth about how my college career went? Or how was it as you were coming up to graduation? Um... I didn't know anything else other than being an athlete. That was who I was. That was my identity. Um, and it was late August of 2000, sitting on my couch in Gainesville, Florida, hot summer day. And that summer day happened to be like two days after I had Tommy John surgery on my elbow. And I like honestly don't know whether it was the painkillers and drugs and meds they had in me after, you know, two days after a surgery like that, which is very major um, elbow reconstruction or what it was. But I was sitting on the couch and I 
it was clear to me that my track career was over. There was this little voice in the back of my head, which was a guy named Jerry Clayton, who was the guy who recruited me to Florida. He had a guy named Rob Olson who went from track to bobsled when back in the day. And um, he had always compared me to Rob and I just laughed it off. What does bobsled have to do with me? But when I was sitting on that couch, I thought to myself, well, maybe I can do it. And literally I wrote an email to the U.S. Olympic Committee of which, you know, in 2000, it was not the easiest thing to do to find, <laughs> to find, there was no contact forms. I emailed them and I said, I'm this big, they're strong, this fast. Can I do this? And I got an email back the next day from USA Bobsled and they were like, yeah, you know, you have to gain some weight. You have to do this and this, but you're the right, you're the right size. So I started training right away. I was like, I'm going to go do this. And of course my good Jewish mother, her first response was go get a job. And I just <laughs> said, you know, give me a year. And so he gave himself a year to train. He also got a whole bunch of jobs, worked in the athletic department at Florida, substitute teaching, coaching a high school track team, and personal training. Now, I know what you're thinking. Bobsledding in Florida? Is this like Cool Runnings, the movie about the Jamaican bobsled team where they train in the sand? Honestly, not that far off. My roommate, at the time, she would meet me over at the parking garage there, and it has like this two or three degree incline and I would push her car. She would sit in her car in neutral and I would push her car up the two to three degree <laughs> incline. And that was nice. And that was my bobsled training. And then I went out to Chula Vista. There's an Olympic training center in Chula Vista. And I remember showing up and seeing these guys that were just ginormous, like massive human beings. And I almost left. And then the next day we started doing testing and I realized I'm faster than almost all of these guys. And I'm not that much weaker and I can do what most of these guys can do. Okay, I can do this. And that was the beginning of of it. And I, I got then got invited out to Lake Placid Olympic Training Center, which is the main bobsled hub, and then took my first trips down a bobsled track, October 4th, 2001. And that is an experience to remember. We'll say that. It turns out Steve's combination of strength and speed was really well suited to pushing a 500 pound sled on ice. And so Steve was one step closer to that lifelong dream of making the Olympics. When most people watch the Olympic Games, they see made-for-TV events with soft-focused photography and music that tugs at your heartstrings. But surprise, surprise, the life of an Olympic athlete is not as glamorous as it looks in those two-plus weeks on NBC. That is the 16-day reality, and then there is another, you know, 365 days times four um, minus the Olympics, that is the amount of days that it takes to, to actually get to the Olympics. So, you know, over a thousand days, over 1200 days of living, you know, living like you're in college again at best. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when you live in the training centers and whether you're in Lake Placid or Chula Vista, you have roommates. There was four guys to a room. In retrospect, it was awesome. In retrospect, it was great. Mm -hmm. You know, I, that's the thing that I miss the most. I miss getting in the sled truck after the race in Winterberg, Germany, and then driving, you know, knowing the back of the, you know, knowing the roads and the autobahns in Europe so well that I could get from Winterberg, Germany to Altenburg, Germany, which is six hours away without a map. So you're, you're broke, mm -hmm. but you're, you're traveling around the world. And, and what about just the aspect of, you know, what you should be doing is very well delineated for you. Like, you know, I was a, a division one athlete. It didn't go on after that, but, but even for me, one of the hardest things to lose was 
the structure of that lifestyle, the clear goals, the, the clear meeting times every day, the teammates with aligned, you know, goals and incentives and things like that. I mean, so did you did you thrive on that, too? Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely think for me, I excelled at executing a plan. You get to wake up every day and get better and you know how to get better. So every single thing you're doing for 24 hours a day, not even not exaggerating, 24 hours a day, all you're doing is focusing on this one goal. And then to your point, you have, for me, you know, on a four-man bobsled team, you have three other guys who are focused on that same exact goal. And there's no questions. There's no questioning about what the priorities are. Generally, most of my career, most of us were, were you know, on and off single because ultimately, who wants to be in a relationship with somebody where you're not the priority? And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when you were competing, you, nobody else could be the priority. For Steve, all that sacrifice and hard work, it paid off when he finally reached the top of the podium in 2010. Steve Messler. In the immediate aftermath, Olympic glory was well, pretty glorious. Steve and his teammates appeared on David Letterman and the Today Show, and Steve got some corporate speaking gigs. But while his three teammates kept competing, he decided to hang up his spikes and spandex. And had you, knowing that you were retiring after 2010, had you given any thought to what was coming next? Or, or is that like something that's kind of difficult to do when you're so laser focused? It, it's almost a, like sacrilege for me. It was almost like mm. sacrilege for me. Anything that was not the goal was a distraction. So mm. no, I had no idea, man. No idea what I was going to do. Putting 500 pounds on your back and squatting it a couple days a week. Like that's something that is exactly what you need to do for bobsled, but it's not something that's setting you up for success and health in life. It's setting you up for success to bobsled and win the Olympics. As he entered this new phase of his life, Steve's perspective on being an Olympic champion started to change. And so at some point you stayed with me uh, in, in Washington, DC, and there were some, some little boys uh, next door, some twin boys who I thought it would be super fun to see a gold medal. Cause I, I assume you were bringing around the gold medal to let people carry it at your meetings and things like that. Mm -hmm. yep. And so, you know, we hung it on the boys and of course their, their dad, uh, my neighbor who I really, really like wanted to wear it mm -hmm. and he put it on. And I remember he asked you something to the effect of, so when they put this around your neck, was it just like everything in the rest of your life is just fine as once you've got this. And I remember thinking, um, you know, because we had talked a little bit that boy, in some ways it sort of couldn't be further from the truth. Like maybe that's what people think when they climb Mount Everest, like everything's going to be fine once I'm on the top. Mm -hmm. uh, what's kind of the reality of it? <laughs> um, if you would have asked me that question before I won that, I would have said, yes, I will mm -hmm. be good the rest of my life. Becoming a medalist in bobsled was my identity. It didn't take over my identity. It was, it was my identity. It, it was exact. It was everything that I wanted. It was all I cared about. Um, you know, I was back in Buffalo in 2010, a few months after we won Olympic gold medal. And I remember this guy, Sam Sellers saying to me, what's it feel like to write the first line of your obituary at the age of 31? Oh, wow. And which is, in, you know, in essence, like, you know, you've now at 31 years old, you've still got, you know, hopefully 50, 60 years life, you know, of life left in you, but you're never going to do anything that big ever again. And like that hits you for sure. When we come back, we'll hear how the Olympic hangover afflicted not just Steve, but also several of his teammates, and sometimes with tragic results. And just a warning, we're going to talk about suicide in the next segment.
Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. We're back with Steve Messler, part of the four-man bobsled team that in 2010 won the first U.S. gold medal in 62 years. And though being an Olympic athlete, it's the honor of a lifetime. But that doesn't mean the transition to the next chapter of life is easy. One of Steve's first Olympian friends who struggled with depression and with a loss of identity was Jarrett Peterson. Nicknamed Speedy, he was a rock star in the daredevil sport of aerial skiing, and he also medaled for the U.S. in 2010. Silver medalist, representing the United States of America, Jarrett Peterson. And I remember watching Speedy win his silver medal at the Olympics that he had you know, strove for and wanted for his whole career, and we'd been through his ups and downs. And Speedy was another guy who was like a media darling because of his signature move, the hurricane. Yeah, the hurricane, It was yeah. like five twists and like a million flips and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he was one of like the joy, the other like joyful moments of the 2010 games yeah. was, was his story. Yeah, and, and Speedy had that joyful side and he also had a darker side. And February 2010, he wins his Olympic medal. In July of 2011, he phones the police and lets him know where they can find his body. And he walks out into the woods in the mountains with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our experiences were pretty similar. We both reached our certain goals. So here's Speedy in 2010 winning a medal and a year later committing suicide. And, you know, Pavle had the same obsessive compulsive drive that I had. Pavle Jovanovic was another bobsledder and one of Steve's former teammates before the night train days. I learned a lot of my best training habits from Pavle. And, you know, I get a phone call last spring, spring of 2020. And, you know, his brother found him in their shop and he hung himself by a steel chain. Vulnerability is a bad thing in bobsled because you have 20 guys knocking down your door. So if you show vulnerability, those guys will smell blood and try to try to get your job. So I learned how to be the best in the world by not showing vulnerability. And that is about one of the most unhealthy habits you can have or traits you can have if you're somebody who is who has a higher proclivity for depression like myself who after multiple concussions over the years and ups and downs and all these different things i was you know probably more susceptible to to mental health issues than your average person and if you're not vulnerable that's a toxic toxic mix and you know you were one of the first you know one of the first people who i was able to be vulnerable with and have these conversations with. I remember us talking about Speedy and you going into some detail about how how hard it was to think about where he must have been to do what he did, which was calling the police and saying, here will be where to find me because, you know, he wanted it to be taken care of quickly. Yep. Um, I didn't know, you know, what you were going through at the time, or, or, or you know, maybe you, I guess you didn't know what you would be headed for eventually, because mm-hmm. this was back in 2011. Yeah. Um, but how, how did it affect you, the loss of Pavle and, and Speedy? Well, and the, the Speedy thing was, I didn't get it yet. I fell for him. I, I didn't understand what he could have been going through that would have led him to that point. 
mental, you know, the, our conversations about mental health in society weren't quite there yet. Being able to talk about your, your mental, your own mental health wasn't as socially acceptable and certainly not in the sport, the sport culture that I came from, that I wasn't in anymore that I came from, you know, and in between those two guys, you have Steve Holcomb who, um, who lost his life either, either by his own means, but certainly through addiction and certainly through issues, um, from sleeping pills and, and alcohol. Steve Holcomb, again, he was the driver and the star of the night train team. Remember the Holky dance? He was a five-time world champion with an Olympic gold and two silvers, but he too struggled with his mental health. You know, I mean, I'm 42 now and I have buried three teammates, let alone other, other people who have bobsledded all, all guys at this point. Um, and, uh, that will, that'll change your change your perception and change your perspective on how you approach mental health, because I don't want that for my family. I don't want that for my friends. I don't want that for my old teammates. So trying to understand how we got here and how those, how does Holcomb get to have those kinds of addiction issues? How does Pavle get to that place? How does Speedy get to that place? How do the numerous other athletes, I mean, I've slid with six guys at the Olympic games. Two of them have in essence committed suicide. That's not the kind of batting percentage that I want. Billy Schufenauer, another old roommate and teammate, has, has attempted suicide. Um, so it leaves you in a position where you really got to think about this, both for yourself and for your family and for your friends. So I think I'm still in that kind of exploring. I, I don't think I'll ever figure it out. I don't think there's a figuring it out stage. Mm. But I think there is a time of which you can start to, if you can recognize how these things happen um, for yourself and for your friends' experience, for your own personal experiences, then maybe you can help others. So obviously mental health is complicated. It doesn't come down to any single factor. And Steve is quick to admit that he himself is still learning. And now he's thinking a lot about how he can help current and future athletes. They need to keep their eyes tightly focused on that prize, especially when they have this intense amount of sacrifice and dedication. But maybe they also need to start thinking about cultivating other parts of their identity so they aren't left with nothing after their competitive careers are over. What I'm starting to do is and starting to talk to other athletes about are some of the, you know, some of the, the behaviors that you have are again, good for your sport or good for your success, but not good for other parts of your life. And I think if you can learn how to separate those two things, it really helps you be more healthy with those parts of your life. But ultimately I'm starting to recognize it for myself in that it's almost like you've got to go through the stages of grief. And mm -hmm. I've, I've, you know, if I look at the stages of grief, I kind of realize that my experience has mirrored that in different ways. And you don't go through the stages of grief, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then you're cured. Um, stages of grief are, you kind of ebb and flow through them and around them. But ultimately you're experiencing loss, even when you win, because I had this thing in my life and it was the pursuit of excellence. It was the pursuit of being the best in the world. I had these people in my life who are all going after the same thing. And then we accomplished it which is fantastic, but it still doesn't replace that that part of me is gone now. You know, you watch people win a Stanley Cup and what do they say? I, I don't have any words. And that's to me is like kind of the first clear indication that it is actually the beginning of the beginning of the grief cycle. That win or loss was only a moment in time. February 27, 2010, that was the day I won the gold medal. But from, from June, 1990 until February of 2010 was the pursuit. And 
So you tell me which one you think is going to be easier to get over. The thing that happened in one day, whether you won or lost, or the thing that was 20 years. Let me let me just put it in my terms where, you know, I had like these two books now that were successes beyond anything that I had imagined for them. And it's not 20 years, but they were a few years each. Uh, and the similarity to the Olympics is that all of the work is happening and that nobody's seeing it. And then in like a flash, everyone is seeing it. Mm-hmm. And so even though it's the success, it's, 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 it's jarring in a way because it was really the, the journey that is the stuff that I love to do. And then it's sort of gone and it's, and you move on to the next thing and, and feel like a beginner in the next thing. So I think it's similar in that sense. And, and maybe for anyone who has a big triumph where the triumph gives them a certain kind of structure, it gives them a certain kind of motivation, uh, it stretches them. And then if they have the success... It's like you have the feeling that, well, now I should just be thrilled, except for you actually lost the thing that you like doing, and it's time to go get started being a beginner and whatever's next. Mm-hmm. And so the aftermath of these these unexpected successes were not were not what I thought. And and so I just think about this, what you're talking about in the sense of everyone, this counterintuitive idea of the fact that that we need to get over our biggest triumphs, you know, instead of them just puffing us up and making us bigger forevermore, there's like a mourning period for them, you know? Yes. (laughs) Um, You just summarized two hours of conversation into 20 seconds. First off, it's okay to recognize that your great triumph, it may well entail a great mourning period. You might need time or you might even need help to grieve the loss of the pursuit and the structure. And when you are ready to move on, recognize that experiences are never just wasted. Think about the tools you developed and creative ways to apply them to whatever comes next. Everything in life is a skill that you, you've got to learn when to use it and when not to use it. And the problem for us athletes is we're pretty pig-headed and we, we became the best in the world at using certain skills. So we assume that those same skills are going to help us be successful in every other aspect of life. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not. Um, and the sooner that you can boil that down into something that you can actually understand as a person, um, as soon as I was able to understand that as a person, boy, oh boy, I got through my depression relatively quickly as soon as I was able to, to admit that to myself. Our work is part of our identity, and identity doesn't just change overnight. Conversations about mental health in sports or in any all-consuming pursuit, they need to be normalized. Being transparent, it might help someone else feel less isolated in their own struggle. I always looked at depression and mental health with the stigma that many people did, right? Like I was an athlete who became the best in the world by not being vulnerable. So of course, if you become the best in the world at something through certain traits, you're going to carry those traits on. So the other thing that I would tell the young me and all the other athletes out there is as soon as I realized that depression was an injury then it made it okay for me to go to counseling because I would go to a therapist if I had a hamstring injury. As soon as I recognized that that depression was, again, was a, was a physical ailment that I could fix, then I can figure out all the tools that I could do to go around it. With the help of counseling, Steve moved past the depression that developed after his career was over, and he moved on to the next chapter of his life. He's married and he has a daughter. He co-founded and runs a nonprofit called Classroom Champions that connects athletes to schools for mentoring. And he now sits on the board of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, where he's pushing to make athletes' mental health a priority. How do you support athletes' mental health while still 
allowing them the you know the ability to compartmentalize and do all the other things they have to do to to succeed on the field of play for them. So we're getting better at it. I, and I think, you know, society's getting better at it too. I don't know if we're nailing it quite yet, but I do know that um, it's a big, it's a big focus right now. And I think that we're getting the infrastructure in place to be able to help athletes in a way that certainly wasn't around when I was there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and certainly wasn't around when Speedy was there, wasn't around when Steve Holcomb was there, wasn't available to Pavel Jovanovic when he was there. Um, so, you know, my hope is that like the next 42 year old bobsledder 10 or 20 years from now doesn't have to talk about the, like the handful of friends that, that he's had to bury. Um, and you know, the bar is, it's not a very high bar, but ultimately it's really tough to get to because you're just talking about people that are the most obsessive, compulsive, focused individuals on the planet. And whether you're an Olympian or, um, you know, or, a you know, an entrepreneur or, or just somebody who's like really trying to be one of the best people in in their field, um, those mindsets are basically all the same. Thank you to David Epstein and Steve Messler for sharing his story with us. Check out his nonprofit, Classroom Champions, especially if you're an educator. We'll link to it in the show notes. And since we talked about depression and suicide, we want to also note if you or anyone you know are in crisis, you can always contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline anytime at 1-800-273-TALK. Or you can find help at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Do you have an Olympic-sized goal you're trying to accomplish? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646 646- 495-4001. And we might have you on the show. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson, Rachel Allen, and Margaret Kelly produced this show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duig created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode next week. <laughs>